Hello, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Today we're going to cover an area of surgery that we haven't really touched on yet, ophthalmology. Now, one of the most common procedures in all of surgery is the treatment of cataracts. But did you know that one surgeon can be credited with the revolutionary step of creating an artificial lens, which has improved the sight of millions? Today we'll talk about Sir Howard Ridley, a true visionary, pun intended, in this episode of Legends of Surgery. We can't describe the importance of the artificial lens without first covering the history of cataracts. So first we'll define what a cataract is and where the name came from, then talk about some of the early methods used to treat it. So a cataract is simply the clouding of the normally optically clear lens in your eye that helps to focus light onto the retina at the back of your eye to form an image. They develop slowly but eventually can lead to blurred and dim vision and even blindness. These changes are often age-related but can be associated with a number of other causes. And there are a number of different types, but the bottom line is that they cause a reduction in vision. Now, the history of the name is a bit strange. The Roman physician, Aulus Cornelius Celsus, who lived around 25 BCE to 50 CE, stated that the disease was caused by an inspissated, meaning thickened by dehydration, humor that had seeped from the brain into the eye between the cornea and iris, thus obstructing vision. The Roman name was suffusion and the Greek hypochyma, both of which implied a humoral origin. The word cataract also means a large waterfall. While the connection between the two meanings is not immediately obvious, there is an explanation. In ancient Greek, cataractus means waterfall, and the white appearance of rapidly rushing water as seen in waterfalls may have been compared to the appearance of the clouded lens, aka cataracts. Now, another possibility comes from early Persian physicians who called cataracts nasul ia, which meant descent of the water. This was likely related to the idea of the corrupt humor descending from the brain and outpouring into the eye like a waterfall. So the term cataract was probably introduced to medical nomenclature by the Persian physician Avicenna, who lived around 980-1037 CE, one of the most famous physicians of the Islamic Golden Age. So now let's talk about the ancient history of cataract treatments. So cataracts have been around since the beginning of recorded history, and obviously long before that, and so the recorded history of treatments is also ancient. Now, the primitive technique of what we now call couching was around for centuries. The name comes from the French word coucher, meaning to lie down, because the lens is depressed downward into the back of the eye. Now, this restored limited but unfocused vision. This was done by pushing the lens with enough force to cause the bands, called zonules, that hold it in place to break, dislocating the lens into the vitreous humor, which is the liquid that makes up most of the eye. Now, this would only work when the cataract was very advanced, being completely opaque, rigid and heavy. Maharshi Sushruta, who lived in 6th century BCE, was an Indian surgeon, and I mentioned him in the podcast on rhinoplasty in episode 41, who was the first to give accurate descriptions of different varieties of cataracts. Sushruta used a curved needle to push the lens inside the eyeball from the exterior of the visual field by breaking the bands, or zonules, and causing the dislocation. The eye was then washed in butter and bandaged. He stated that the operation was only to be done in ex if extremely necessary. And given that it really only worked on advanced cases, and likely was necessary, to return at least some vision to the patient. Now let's fast forward to ancient Rome. The author Celsus, who I mentioned earlier, described a surgical intervention for cataracts in his medical treaty, De Medicina, and mentions that cataract surgery was practiced in the Alexandrian school in Egypt, since the teachings of Sushruta probably reached Alexandria after Alexander the Great returned from his expedition to India. Celsus described the use of a couching needle to displace the lens from the front of the eye, as Sushruta did. An interesting side note. 
A later Roman writer attributed the development of this operation to someone noticing that a goat, who was blind from cataracts, had its vision restored when it ran its eye onto a thorn. So the next step in cataract surgery had to be to remove rather than just displace the cataract. Some of the earliest reports describe the removal of the cataract by suction through a hollow instrument. The 10th century Persian physician Al-Razi, who attributed it to Antilles, a 2nd century Greek physician, described a procedure that required, quote, a large incision in the eye, a hollow needle, and an assistant with an extraordinary lung capacity, end quote. But the first reported surgical removal of a cataract is credited to the French ophthalmologist and surgeon oculist to King Louis XV, Jacques Daviel. On April 8th of 1747, he carried out the first extracapsular extraction of a cataract. This was done by making a cut, or incision, halfway around the circumference of the cornea. The lens had to be rigid so that it could be removed in one piece, limiting operations to only the most advanced cataracts. If pieces got into the vitreous humor, it would cause inflammation. And there were no fine sutures like there are today to close the incision, so patients had to be kept immobilized with sandbags around their head while the wound healed. Now, amazingly, the early literature on cataract surgery reported the mortality rate, as patients would occasionally form blood clots in their legs from being immobilized by the sandbags. These blood clots could break off and travel to the lungs, causing a pulmonary embolism and killing the patient. Anyways, Daviel presented his paper entitled, quote, A New Method of Curing Cataract by Removing the Lens, end quote, on April 13, 1752, to the French Royal Academy of Surgeons. And cataract surgery didn't really change significantly for the next 200 years. Well, that is until Dr. Harold Ridley came along. So let's talk about him and his story. Nicholas Harold Lloyd Ridley was born on July 10, 1906, in Kibworth, Leicestershire, England. His father was an ophthalmologist consultant at the Leicester Royal Infirmary. Now here's a bit of interesting trivia from his childhood. At the age of six, he sat on the knee of Florence Nightingale, see podcast 16, a friend of his mother's. Anyway, after completing his studies at Cambridge in 1927, he proceeded with medical training at St. Thomas Hospital, completing his basic medical education in 1930. He became a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons in 1932, and on the advice of his father, to see the world before he got too busy, worked as a ship surgeon in 1933-34 in the Baltic, and later served on a four-month voyage to Japan. Following this, in 1934-35, Ridley received additional training in ophthalmology at Moorfields Eye Hospital in London. Quick historical side note. Moorfields was founded in 1805 as the London Dispensary for Curing Diseases of the Eye and Ear, and it's still open today. By 1938, he was appointed full surgeon and permanent consultant at both St. Thomas Hospital and Moorfields Eye Hospital in London, becoming the youngest person ever to have received such an appointment. Now, of course, by this time, World War II was looming. In the early years of the war, Ridley remained a civilian physician and worked at a number of centers, some of which were near the airfield called the RAF Tangmir, as part of the emergency medical service. It was here that he would meet a pilot that would inspire him to create an operation that would revolutionize cataract surgery. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. In May of 1931, Ridley entered the Royal Army Medical Corps, was appointed a temporary major, and sent to Ghana on the Gold Coast of West Africa. Although he was initially disappointed to be sent to an area of active fighting where he felt he could help the most, Ridley used his time to perform original work on tropical eye diseases, especially onchocerciasis, also known as river blindness. This is a common cause of blindness in sub-Saharan Africa, and is caused by a parasitic worm that is transmitted by the bites of a black fly that lives near rivers, hence the name. Ridley wrote a monograph called, quote, Ocular Onchocerciasis, end quote, which was published in 1945. In addition to this classic paper, he actually made a sketch of the appearance of the fundus, which is the back part of the eye, in affected patients, which is still known as the Hissette-Ridley fundus. 
I'll post an image on Twitter. After 18 months in Ghana, Ridley was sent to work in Pune, India, in Rangoon, Burma. While in Burma, he treated over 200 released prisoners of war who suffered from nutritional amblyopia, which is impaired or dim vision, while being held by the Japanese. Ridley was scheduled for discharge from the army in 1946, but received early discharge in 1945, so he could return to London and use his tropical medicine experience to treat returning prisoners and refugees who suffered blindness from nutritional deficiencies. So let's get back to that early war experience and what was learned from it. Well, the key patient, or at least the only one we know something about, was Flight Lieutenant Gordon Mouse Cleaver of the Royal Air Force. He served with the 601 Squadron throughout the Battle of France and the evacuation of Dunkirk, and in the early days of the Battle of Britain, becoming a flying ace. And while flying back to base after a sortie on August 14, 1940, a bullet smashed through the Perspex acrylic material that formed the sidewalls of the cockpit. In his rush to the plane, Cleaver had forgotten to put on his flight goggles. He was immediately blinded in both eyes by multiple fragments of material from the canopy. Now, amazingly, Cleaver was able to maintain control of the aircraft long enough to flip it upside down so he could parachute to safety landing in the English flatlands. Ridley performed many operations on Cleaver's eyes over the next several years at Moorfields. One eye was saved and he was able to return to civilian life with several small pieces of perspex still embedded in his eyes. Ridley realized that these foreign bodies, quote, have remained in eyes for years, often overlooked even with careful examination and cause no trouble unless a sharp edge lies against a sensitive and mobile portion of the iris, end quote. As we've covered, the standard for cataract treatment was removal which led to something called aphakia, from the Greek meaning the absence of a lens. This required patients to rely on coke bottle thick glasses, which improved vision somewhat, but were cumbersome, and caused distortion of images at the periphery of vision. Ridley's eureka moment came when he dreamt of replacing the removed lens with an implant made of the same material that the cockpit was made of, since he knew it wouldn't cause a reaction. Hence the seed of the intraocular lens implant was born. Now, Ridley had considered the idea for years, but finally gained the courage to act when a medical student named Stephen Perry asked him in 1948 while rounding on a cataract patient if he, quote, intended to replace the absent part of the eye, end quote. Ridley contacted a friend and leading optical scientist at Rayner & Keel Limited, a leading optical company in England named John Pike. Now, they had to keep it secret, given the known resistance to the idea of placing foreign material in the eye, and they weren't wrong considering the backlash to come. Ridley and Pike met in Ridley's Rolls-Bentley and sat in Cavendish Square one evening a few hundred yards from his home and worked out the main principles of the operation. The two then met with Dr. John Holt from the Plastics Division of Imperial Chemical Industries, and they developed a clinical-quality artificial lens from a pure form of polymethyl methacrylate, a material that was developed and until then mainly used as safety glass, including in the aircraft industry for windshields, canopies, and gun turrets. You may know it as acrylic glass or plexiglass, lucite or perspex. They created the first artificial lens from this material and essentially created an industry. So let's get to the surgery. The first operation done at St. Thomas Hospital, London, England was on November 29, 1949 and was an extra capsule removal of a cataract on a 45-year-old hospital nurse named Elizabeth Atwood who had a cataract in the left eye. Ridley actually inserted the artificial lens at the time but was uncertain that the implant was stable so he removed it then and there. He then reinserted the intraocular lens implant on February 8, 1950. The plan was to quietly proceed for two years in secret before revealing his creation, but the news was leaked when a patient looking for a follow-up appointment consulted the wrong ophthalmologist, who was named Frederick Ridley, thinking he was the right surgeon. So Harold Ridley then first presented his new procedure at the Oxford Ophthalmological Congress in Oxford, England on July 9, 1951. 
He reported on two patients whom he had brought to the Congress so that other surgeons could examine the patients themselves. But the idea of inserting a foreign body generated a lot of resistance and hostilities, with some surgeons referring to it as a time bomb, meaning complications were sure to ensue. The operation was published in The Lancet in 1952 in a paper called, quote, Intraocular Acrylic Lenses After Cataract Extraction, end quote, which is actually available online. And it's surprisingly readable, opening with the statement that, quote, Extraction alone is but half the cure for cataract, end quote. Ridley goes on to describe 25 eyes treated and makes this observation at the end of the report of his results. Quote, it is a new experience to hear a cataract patient remark at a post-operative dressing, quote, I can see the faces of all you gentlemen quite clearly, end quote. Now this led to a paradigm shift in ophthalmology and Ridley claimed it was more revolutionary than evolutionary. But he was non-confrontational and apolitical, so instead of responding and fighting back against most of the criticisms, he continued to practice in silence, showing up his detractors with results. The progress continued by Ridley and others, and the first international symposium on intraocular lenses and implants was held in 1966 at the Royal Society of Medicine in London. So through this, the Intraocular Implant Club was formed, and Ridley was the first president. And by the late 1960s, he'd refined his technique, overcoming some of the early complications. Others also contributed, with probably the most significant being by Dr. Charles Kelman, an American ophthalmologist who worked at the Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital in New York. His contribution was to use ultrasound to emulsify or break up the lens into tiny fragments that can then get sucked up or aspirated. This was called the phacoemulsification technique and was inspired by a dentist's probe. He invented a tool that combined ultrasound, irrigation, and aspiration into a single handheld instrument. This led to removal of the lens through a much smaller incision, which today is down to less than 3 millimeters long, decreasing the need for an extended hospital stay and reducing pain from the surgery. So despite decades of resistance, the concept of the artificial lens became widely accepted by the 1980s, and Ridley began to finally be recognized for his contribution to ophthalmology. And once he was, the accolades poured in, including becoming a Fellow of the Royal Society of London in 1986, and being knighted by Queen Elizabeth II at Buckingham Palace in February of 2000. But although he felt honored by these awards, one of Ridley's proudest achievements was related to the humanitarian work that he continued to do in Africa throughout his career. In the Luapula Valley in Zambia, Ridley helped to reduce blindness in children by 90%. Sir Harold Ridley died on May 25, 2001 at the age of 96. He had helped to usher in a golden age of ophthalmology, making cataract surgery one of the most common procedures in the world. Now, Ridley did not patent it and therefore did not profit from his creation, but rather considered it a gift to humanity. And in a curious twist of fate, to himself. In 1989 and 1990, Dr. Harold Ridley underwent cataract extraction with artificial lens implants, which left him with 20-20 vision. Here's what he said about it. Quote, I've seen ophthalmology improve from a relatively small peripheral specialty to become one of the major parts of a hospital, helping a large proportion of elderly patients. I have indeed become one of them myself, lucky to live long enough to personally benefit from the enormous improvement in cataract surgery. I am almost certainly the only surgeon ever to design a new operation that was to be used in both of my own eyes some 40 years later, end quote. So let's end on this. Now, although cataract surgery is one of the most common procedures in the world, there is a huge backlog of cases, especially in the third world, with some estimates putting that number around 18 million people. Like in the podcast on Sims, where I discussed obstetric fistulas, 
I'll not endorse any one group, but point out that there are many charitable organizations that are working to correct this and helping to eliminate one of the most common, reversible causes of blindness in the world. Check them out if you're so inclined. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. The next episode will come out on October 20th, which will be the last show before Halloween. So in keeping with that theme, I thought I'd try something a little different. The focus of that show will be the history of creepy crawlers in surgery. Should be a lot of fun. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. As always, thanks for listening.